Welcome to the Decade of 2020 podcast. Join me in my effort as I relentlessly focus on how the next 10 years will affect the middle class in the Western economies. Forewarned is forearmed, they say. We will speak with the subject matter experts about the intersection of finance, geopolitics, and history in order to connect the timeless with the immediate. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Michael Beckley. Dr. Beckley is an associate professor of political science at Tufts University and a Jean Kirkpatrick visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Previously, Dr. Beckley has worked for Howard's Kennedy School of Government, the United States Department of Defense, the Rand Corporation, and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He holds a PhD in political science from Columbia University. He is considered a US-China relations expert and writes regularly for the Financial Times, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, The New York Times, NPR, and The Washington Post. His first book, titled Unrivaled, Why America Will Remain the World's Sole Superpower, was published in 2018 by Cornell University Press, and it has gathered some excellent reviews. Dr. Beckley, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks so much for having me. So before we dig deeper into the world of geopolitics and and talk about your book, can you speak a little bit about your childhood and what motivated you toward political science and how did you end up in the world of government and defense? That's a good question. My family has a long line of people being involved in international security, maybe at least somewhat indirectly. So both sides of my grandparents served in, in World War II. And on my, my grandmother's side, one of her brothers was killed in action and another was wounded. And they fought for this storied 442nd Infantry, which is the most decorated unit in the U.S. military even to this day. And this was a Japanese-American unit. And so she, my grandma was interned in the United States while her brothers were off fighting for the United States. So you know, maybe that had some kind of impression on me. I think also just as a child of the 80s and, you know, there's, this is when the Cold War was really heating up. So it was in the news and there was lots of sort of raw, raw America um, movies, whether it's, you know, Top Gun or, or Rambo or things like that. So maybe that added influence. And I think also just, you know, my parents were sort of news junkies. And so they always had the news on in the evening. And so maybe just through sort of osmosis, I, I developed an interest. But it's really it's tough to pinpoint exactly where, but that's the best I can think of. What made you choose to go toward the world of defense in particular? I just I felt like it was one of the most important areas. I guess another thing I've often thought about is just you know, growing up in the United States, I was sort of aware that the United States had this unparalleled power, especially military power in the world, and I never fully understood why. And so I guess I, you know, started taking an interest in that. And and the more I, I thought about it, the more I felt that, you know, the United States can have a tremendous impact on the rest of the world, whether for good or for ill, depending on how well it's security policy is run. And so that's something I decided I wanted to dedicate my career to, to trying to make sure that policy was as informed as possible um, and conducted with as much skill and knowledge as possible. You have spent years working for the DOD and the RAND Corporation, both of which are institutions that do a massive amount of strategic thinking in developing a worldview for the United States. Give us your own 30,000 foot view as you see it on the radar in the August of 2020. 
in terms of just the balance of economic and military power, I mean, I've been arguing for a long time that even though the United States has lots of problems, it, its lead over its competitors, especially China, is much larger than most people think. And it also has the best prospects to continue to amass wealth and military power in the decades ahead, partially for demographic reasons. It's, it's one of the only great powers with a growing working age population, partly for geographic reasons. You know, all the other major powers are packed together in Eurasia, and so they, they squabble with each other. The United States is the only great power in the Western Hemisphere, and it's got this great piece of territory that's packed with resources, and surrounded by just a couple of allies and two big oceans. And then institutionally, you know, the United States right now, its political institutions look like a total mess. And there's no denying that. At the same time, when I look at other countries' institutions, like in China, especially, you know, it's basically turned into this corrupt oligarchy that's ruled by a dictator for life. And so even though the United States is not exactly painting itself in glory, I see it, you know, having kind of the best prospects to maintain this preponderance of wealth and military capabilities. Now, the other thing I foresee over the next decade or two is a major shift in U.S. foreign policy. I think right now U.S. foreign policy is still kind of in the waning moments of its Cold War era policy. So, you know, after 1945, the United States starts forming all these alliances to, to win the Cold War, essentially, and it builds a free trade area among its allies, again, to prop up what they used to call the free world, the democratic capitalist world against the communist world. But, you know, the Cold War ended 30 years ago, and I think a lot of Americans, including the current president, are starting to question, why are we defending 68 countries? Why are we patrolling all of the sea lanes? Why are we subscribing to international institutions when we have a lot of power and we could focus easily on a more America first type strategy that privileges U.S. interests? So I think in the decades ahead, you're actually going to see a shift towards a more unilateral policy. I actually think elements of the Trump doctrine are going to become core elements of U.S. foreign policy. And frankly, that's what U.S. foreign policy looked like prior to 1945. It was much more unilateralist than, than the post-1945 foreign policy has been. That is a great segue to now jump into the book. Is it fair to assume that the primary reason you wrote the book was to debunk the myth of uh, America's decline? Or was it more of a wake-up call to those power structures and the general public who have become slightly smug into thinking that the U.S. is almost invincible? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I initially got interested in the topic because I, I, I thought that the United States was in decline and I thought that China was going to become, if not co-equal with the United States, certainly, you know, a rival superpower. And so I initially was going to do a bunch of research. And this is you know, back in the mid-2000s when I started researching this area. I, I thought I was going to write uh, a book and a bunch of articles on sort of the the epic rise of China and a big transition in power between the United States and China. And I lived in China, you know, for a while to, to study this. And it was, it was while I was there that I sort of realized a lot of the cracks in the Chinese system, a lot of the things that could hold it back as a major power. And I, and I also started to appreciate some of the advantages that the United States had. And so then I sort of shifted gears. And, and the more I started looking at the data, I realized that this picture that the media had been portraying of the United States in terminal decline and all of you know, the BRIC countries rising and taking over the world was totally flawed and was just not supported by the evidence. And so I said, well, someone needs to put together 
this evidence in a systematic way. And so I spent you know, years collecting data for this book and tried to present it in sort of the most straightforward way possible. So that's, that's basically how I got into the, the topic. At the same time, you know, studying it made me very aware of a lot of the weaknesses that the United States has. And I think a lot of them are internal, especially with its domestic politics. So I try to highlight that as well in the book, in the hopes that there will be a wake-up call in the United States to address those issues. The book came out in 2018, and I found it interesting that you had correctly predicted a greatly diminished U.S. military presence in the Middle East. What were the core reasons for that? And is it because the only way to sustain U.S. hegemony is protecting the shipping lanes in the Indo-Pacific? Or is it because that the U.S. no longer needs energy security from the Saudis and, and doesn't care much about the oil choke points? And it basically allows the non-Arab actors like Iran and Turkey to clean up the mess that uh, the U.S. has left behind. Yeah, I think it's several things. One is war weariness in the United States. I think these wars in Afghanistan and, and Iraq were entering their you know, their second decade. And so, you know, you could tell the American public just did not want to have this massive investment sinking trillions of dollars and thousands of American lives. The second huge issue is the fracking revolution and the fact that the United States is now the world's largest any energy producer. It's not like it's totally immune to shocks in the global energy market, but it's much more insulated from those shocks and is a lot less dependent on major producers, Saudi Arabia in particular. And so the threat of oil disruption is not nearly as threatening. And then third is, you know, the, the relative shift in emphasis of threat perception. So the fact that there haven't been large scale 9-11 style attacks since 9-11 has caused a lot of Americans to think, well, maybe, you know, counterterrorism, it's important, but it's not this vital thing that we need to have a huge military presence in the region. We can do it through drone strikes and special operations raids, primarily at an offshore military presence. Meanwhile, the rise of China and Russia's renewed aggressiveness, especially after 2014, was kind of a wake-up call that great power competition was something that the United States had been downplaying for couple of decades and needed to get back in the game of waging. So I think the combination of those things, the relative shift towards great powers, the you know relative mitigation of, of being dependent on oil supplies, and then just war weariness after decades of, of slogging it out in Iraq and Afghanistan. The concept of air and sea denial and how China is employing the strategy against the United States in the South and the East China Sea. Yeah, I think in military terms, it can be helpful to think in terms of either control of territory versus denying your adversary access to territory. So obviously, control of territory means you can decide who gets in and who gets out, and you can't be removed from that territory. You control it. That's one mission that's very important. But I think what China is excelling at is being able to deny the U.S. military freedom of operation in waters near China's coastline. So it's not like China can plant a flag in those waters and defend it um, against any incursion. But what it can do is target, say, American aircraft carriers there. It can target American bases in Japan, the Philippines, South Korea, maybe even all the way out to Guam, and basically impede or deny the U.S. military's ability to mass military power right off of China's coastline, which would be very important in any kind of war between the two countries. And China has been doing this largely by developing its missile forces. It arguably has the most diverse and advanced 
missile force in the world. It has all kinds of anti-ship missiles, anti-air missiles, ballistic, you know, anti-ship missiles that conceivably could hit American aircraft carriers, up, you know, a thousand miles away from from the Chinese mainland. And you combine that with cyber capabilities too, which can potentially disrupt the sort of nerve center of U.S. military power. So I think China has smartly invested in these kind of denial capabilities because the Chinese recognize that they don't want to be in sort of a head-to-head throwdown with the U.S. military where it's ship for ship, airplane for airplane, given that the United States has technological superiority. But what they can credibly do, um, and which is much easier for a weaker power to do, is act like a porcupine, you know, where you scare off the bear by having these very sharp spines that prevent the bear from getting too close to you. So I think that's kind of been the, the mantra of a big part of China's military development. It'll then be a question to whether China can now start developing what are called power projection capabilities, the ability to now start moving its military forces far from its borders and waging high-intensity warfare on the open seas. That's much more difficult. China you know, is, has a couple of aircraft carriers, so conceivably could move in that direction. But I think the more pressing threat for the United States are these so-called anti-access area denial capabilities that China has, I think, quite smartly and, and quite astutely capitalized on. Where do you see the India-China power struggle going from here, especially after the face-off in the Galwan Valley in Ladakh? I, I mean, I think it's going to continue in this sort of low-intensity skirmish for the foreseeable future. Neither side is willing to submit you know, its, its border dispute to, to international arbitration. Both sides, there's been low-level stuff going on for, for years. And both countries, I think, have a quite assertive foreign policy at this point. And maybe it's being driven by domestic insecurities. Both countries are experiencing major growth slowdowns right now in terms of their economy. And what often happens in those cases is countries become more prickly and aggressive internationally. So it seems like neither side particularly wants to um, back down and they both have large and in fact moved more military forces into the region. So it's hard to see how they can disentangle themselves from this conflict. And meanwhile, you know, competition between them in the Indian Ocean and the maritime sphere is heating up as well. So what I hope is that it just stays this sort of low level skirmishing and that both sides can save some face and that, you know, frankly, neither side wants to get into a major shooting war in the Himalayas because both of them believe that their security interests are much more in the maritime domain in the Indian Ocean. But it's not impossible just given the amount of hardware and and military personnel you have in the area. And we've, you know, we just saw it recently spill over into open hostilities. You know, the fact that guns were not used shows that it doesn't, they don't necessarily have to be for these things to turn deadly and to turn into an international crisis. Do you see the U.S. recognizing Taiwan diplomatically before the elections, especially after Tsai's landslide victory in January? Can you speak in brief about the power dynamics of the current setup in terms of the military might on both sides? You present a very detailed analysis uh, in the book. I I don't think the United States is going to start supporting Taiwanese independence or um, fully, you know, radically altering the its its uh, acknowledgement of of uh, one china policy but i think a lot of the de facto linkages between taiwan and the united states are deepening right now you know, you've seen higher you know exchanges of higher level officials the united states just had a massive arms sales package to taiwan and i certainly don't think it's going to be the last in fact i would assume arms sales are going to increase in the years ahead and a lot of this is you know, this is one of the main centers of gravity of this emerging U.S.-China 
Cold War. I think for both geostrategic and sort of political and legitimacy reasons, Taiwan really is a center of this conflict. Because for China, you know, it's this unsinkable aircraft carrier right off their coastline. It, it's the fulcrum between the East and South China Seas. And in Chinese hands, it could be a launching pad for pushing out um, further out into the Pacific in Taiwan's hands. And if Taiwan is tight with the United States, it's kind of like this bottle cap that keeps China bogged down because it has to de you know, deploy roughly a third of its military modernization to maintaining the capability to coerce or even take back Taiwan by force. So I think it's no surprise that this has become such a major issue, and especially given trends in Taiwanese domestic politics, where you have an increasing number of Taiwanese identifying solely as Taiwanese, you know, not as Chinese and Taiwanese. And so this new sense, uh, especially among the younger generation, of this distinct national identity and a, an absolute <laughs> disinterest, shall we say, in wanting to be reunited with the mainland, especially after they've seen what happened in Hong Kong with the supposed one country, two systems and the debacle that's become. So I, I think you know the tension between the two countries is going to increase. I don't think the United States is going to alter its stated diplomatic policy, but de facto, it's going to be selling arms to Taiwan. It's going to be meeting with Taiwanese officials, trying to help Taiwan get diplomatic recognition from other countries, which it's been losing in recent years as China has basically bought off a bunch of small island nations to get them to drop their recognition of Taiwan. And so that in itself is is an escalation. And of all the areas, I think a Taiwan contingency is by far the most likely area for a war between the United States and China. I've seen the best minds argue on national television that China does not really have any global hegemonic intention. And the reason that the Chinese have a military posture in the, in the South China Sea is because they look at everything from the lens of uh, a century of humiliation that they have suffered at the hands of Great Britain and later Japan. H how do you view this argument? I think both things can be true at the same time. I mean, what is viewed as defensive to one country is often viewed as offensive from another country's perspective. So let's just take the South China Sea. I mean, China feels for its own defensive needs, it, it has to be able to exert control over that critical waterway, just given, I mean, it's, it's its economic lifeline. And so if you look at China's claims in the South China Sea, they're incredibly extensive. They basically claim almost the entire sea. Now, from a U.S. or from a country in the region, from their standpoint, that's incredibly hostile and an offensive act. And so China's attempts to consolidate those claims are you know, going to bring the region to the brink of war, essentially. So I think both of these things can be true at the same time. Steps that China feels it needs to take to ensure its economic livelihood, you know, securing far-flung sea lanes, that in itself can be from other countries' perspective, a push for regional domination. And I think both sides can be right in their own sort of subjective view of the situation. That doesn't change the fact that it means their interests are diametrically opposed and can lead to conflict. So in the early part of the book, you do a great job of, of tabulating the power rivalries over the past three centuries or so, in which the rivalry between Britain and China, which lasted for roughly 70 years, and resulted into two opium wars, which is, which is described in great detail in the in chapter four of the book. Do you think the opioid crisis in the United States is a reverse opium war strategy employed by the PLA and the Chinese Communist Party? To put things in perspective, more people have been killed overdosing on fentanyl than the entire Vietnam conflict in the past five years. 
I mean, I don't think that was the the secret plan that the CCP had to try to make up for the opium wars. I don't think they think about it that narrowly, like we just want to kill some Americans. And I think a lot of America's opioid crisis has a lot more to do with American drug companies and a lack of oversight and extreme flaws in our healthcare system that leads to the overprescribing of opioids. You know, opioids are not the only thing that medically that the United States has outsourced to China, as we've learned in this COVID crisis. So I think that's almost more of a coincidence. Obviously, once it happens, there were, you know, people snickering on the Chinese side saying, well, this is, you know, payback essentially for the century of humiliation. But I mean, that that's more just kind of being uh, inflamed by current politics, not about an actual long-term historical plan to right past wrongs. I think the century of humiliation drives much deeper, more ambitious aspects of Chinese foreign policy, namely territorial expansion, taking back Taiwan, booting the U.S. military presence out of East Asia, and you know subjugating Japan. Those things are much more front and center than you know killing Americans with a, a bunch of opioids. In chapter two, you define what power is and you explain how how to measure it. You start by showing the standard indicators and what are the three costs that drain countries' economic and military resources, which are production, welfare, and security costs. In terms of welfare, I know it it became a hot button issue when Bernie was campaigning. The issue of medical care, and as the demographic uh, gets older. It, it's it's likely to become a hotter subject. And the fact when we compare the amount of dollars that United States spends per capita on the medical care, but it ranks fairly low as compared to other democracies in its child mortality rate and, and especially life expectancy. There's no denying that the U.S. healthcare system is is almost criminally inefficient. Uh, you know, I think the United States spends roughly 18% of GDP on healthcare, but as you mentioned, it's mediocre um, among rich countries in terms of healthcare outcomes. If you are employed by a private employer and you're relatively wealthy, you can get access to the best medical care in the world. But if you're unemployed or you're poor or both, you, you're you're going to suffer. And we've seen how that's played out in the COVID crisis, where you know fatalities have happened disproportionately among poor and minority communities. So, you know, in my mind, the, the healthcare system is, is basically a national disgrace. That said, you know, you mentioned this in the context of aging. And while the United States does have an aging crisis on its hands because of the aging of the baby boomers, U.S. demographics are actually some of the best in the world. The United States is the only country in the top 20 economies other than Australia and Canada that is going to have a growing working age population a uh, uh, young young worker population. So those are people aged 20 to 49, people in the prime of their working lives. And frankly, the, the top consumers, you know, people that really drive consumption, the people that buy houses and cars and all the things you need to raise kids, et cetera, they drive the economy. And the United States is one of only three countries um, in the top 20 economies in the world that's going to have a growing working age population. And meanwhile, even though the United States is going to have a lot of seniors it's not going to be as bad as, you know, especially China, where China is going to gain more than 300 million senior citizens over the next 30 years. Meanwhile, it's going to lose 200 million people out of its working age population. So that is just a catastrophic 
reversal of Chinese demographics and it's going to put their healthcare system under enormous strain because, you know, basically all ailments get much worse as you get older. And with just a lot more people over 65, China is going to have um, a, a ton of medical problems. I mean, also in the book, I show that even though the U.S. healthcare system is extremely inefficient, it at least produces decent outcomes compared to major power competitors like Russia or China um, or even a country like India. It doesn't do that well against, obviously, other developed countries, but against its major power competitors, U.S. health outcomes are still much, much better. How do you see the impact of the coronavirus on America's chemistry with its allies and its adversaries? Or what are the three key changes that you have noted that seem to have accelerated after March of 2020? Well, I think one is infighting and disillusion among what used to be called the free world. So the you know system of democratic capitalist alliances that the United States orchestrated. We've seen infighting among the allies. And I think the fact that this is going to impose enormous economic devastation across the world is going to inflame economic nationalism around the world. But I think the most important area it's going to hit is within the heart of the free world, um, where you're already seeing a shift towards right-wing parties across the democratic world. And in the United States, you've seen the rise of populism. So I just worry that that's going to basically fracture these this Western alliance, which has made the world a lot better over the last you know several decades. So I think that's one area is you're going to see the United States and its allies increasingly being driven apart because you're going to see a rise in economic nationalism. I think a second trend is just the demise of whatever is left of global governance. I actually think the response to the COVID crisis, the shambolic response to the COVID crisis by the international community is is basically what's going to happen more and more in the future. So instead of working together to solve a common transnational problem, basically countries hoarded medical supplies. The institution that was supposed to solve this for us, the World Health Organization, was parroting Chinese disinformation about how, you know, initially they were saying the virus wasn't going to spread human to human, because that's what China was telling them. So they basically fed a bunch of propaganda rather than real information. And then the United States, instead of taking a leadership role, has pulled out of that organization and just kind of retreated into itself through its own incompetent policies on COVID. So I actually see this as kind of what the future of international organizations are going to look like. They're going to be hollowed out. They're going to be exposed as pieces of paper that don't actually bring countries together in the midst of a crisis. Um, I think arms control treaties are basically dead from here on out as countries take their security into their own hands. I think things like NATO and even the EU are sort of on borrowed time because I don't think the United States is that committed to NATO. And I think without NATO, it's going to be hard to keep the EU together. And, you know, the, the agencies of the UN, you know, if you look at something like the UN Human Rights Council, it's basically a joke now. I mean, half the members are countries that blatantly abuse human rights and are basically using membership in that organization to dilute it from its original mission. So the second trend I see is basically a decline in global in global governance. The third trend that I think is being accelerated by, by COVID is a sort of a return to great power um, mercantilism and even neo-imperialism. I think the United States is is clearly it's using, you know, things like tariffs it's much more willing to use coercive economic power to just get its own way, even over current allies. And so this idea of a globalized world where any country can buy anything it needs on a global market is, is not going to be sustainable 
um, in the future. I think you're going to see a lot more closed borders, maybe even militarized sea lanes. And in that kind of environment, countries are going to have to take their economic security into their own hands. They're going to have to do what they've always done prior to 1945, which is secure their economic lifelines one way or another. So for the most powerful countries, they're going to do it by, you know, moving in, basically carving out their own economic spheres. So for Russia, that means trying to corral its neighbors into uh, a Eurasian economic union centered on Moscow. France, I could see it tightening its grip on its former colonies in, in North Africa. I really worry about what's going to happen to Germany because Germany, half of its GDP is based on trade. And in a world where trade is, you know, where protectionism is rising and countries are closing borders and the EU, because of demographics, can no longer absorb a glut of German goods, it's going to have to find new markets somewhere and secure those markets and lifelines somehow. And, you know, history suggests that, you know, when Germany has to take matters into its own hands, things don't necessarily go so well. So, I mean, I just, it's not like I think there's going to be World War III or something, but I just think it's going to become a more competitive world because of the economic pressures that countries are going to be under. This was a trend that was starting before COVID, but I think COVID has blown it out in the open because now so many countries are effectively broke because of these economic shutdowns. Geopolitically speaking, in the backdrop of the scenario of the future that you have just painted, is there a dichotomy of outcomes emerging over the next 10 years where either a status quo is maintained in terms of the military balance or do you see the U.S. and its allies openly confronting China? Or is that not a correct way of thinking about things or framing the context? So it's kind of tough to talk about an overall military balance, because I think the military balance varies depending on what kind of what area you're talking about. So I think the military balance over Taiwan, for example, is shifting in China's favor because they have exploited a lot of technologies that make use of the fact that they're so close to Taiwan and the U.S. military you know, basically has to operate from a few vulnerable bases in East Asia and lug all of its equipment across an ocean to fight. And meanwhile, you know, China's economy is, is overwhelming Taiwan's just in sheer size. So they just have so many more resources to throw at the conflict. So I think there, you know, that military balance is going to continue to shift in China's favor for, for at least the next decade. Farther afield, though, it's just really hard to project military power. It takes an incredible amount of resources. And I actually think China, you know, after the next 10 to 20 years, it's not going to be able to afford that kind of military, largely for demographic reasons. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, 300 million more seniors, 200 million fewer workers. You just are not going to have the money. You're not going to have the tax base. And what money you do raise is going to have to go to buying healthcare for the elderly, not for spending on guns for the military. So if you're looking further out, um, and in terms of sort of the overall military balance or the military balance on the high seas, I actually see that staying ship, you know, skewed in America's favor. But in particular areas, and especially over Taiwan, I can see the balance continuing to shift in China's favor because there it doesn't matter who has more military stuff overall. It's about more about geography and the political circumstances and the way technology interacts with that geography. And right now, I think technology makes it a lot easier for China to harass and coerce Taiwan than it could you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. You wrote what I thought was a superb piece in foreign policy in November of last year titled, In Future Wars, the U.S. military will have nowhere to hide. In it, you wrote, the Navy wants big warships, not missile barges. 
the Air Force favors manned crafts, not autonomous drones. I found this fascinating, especially because it is contradictory with what the media is programming us to believe in that they present a compelling view that the near-term future of war is autonomous. Do you mind articulating this? I think any military revolution or any major change in, in technology, it takes a long time for militaries as organizations to adapt to them. And ironically, it can be the more dominant militaries that are slower to adapt because they've invested so much and trained for so long to fight in a particular way. And when technology makes that way of war no longer obsolete, essentially, uh, it takes a while for, you know, to cut through the bureaucratic politics, to retrain and, and retool this massive organization that has so much capital sunk into a certain way of war. So in the American context, the Americans have developed a particular way of war where, you know, the Americans don't fight on their own soil. You know, they fight over on the enemy's soil. And the way they do that is by operating from bases on allied territory and from big aircraft carriers. And basically, these areas traditionally were sanctuaries for the U.S. military. If you look at the Iraq wars or the interventions in Kosovo, the U.S. basically was able to set up shop right next to those countries and then just churn out air and missile strikes on their territory with really like industrial efficiency because those countries had no capability to strike American bases. But now with this revolution in technology where precision guided munitions, long range missiles, high endurance drones that can carry very powerful explosives that can basically go across oceans or, or missiles that can be hid in shipping containers that can be placed off the American coast. There's just so many new threats to American bases and to American aircraft carriers. And so the United States military can no longer count on these vital sanctuaries to build up its military force, you know, for weeks before the war starts and then just pound the enemy into smithereens. Now it's going to have to fight in what war planners call contested environments. Everywhere is going to be a contested environment. And in the article that you referenced, I was arguing that even bases on the American homeland are becoming increasingly vulnerable because in particular, China and Russia are talking about ways of putting missiles on shipping containers and having them, you know, just kind of stealthily in the Gulf of Mexico and so the United States, which keeps its stealth bomber fleet, which is really critical to its power in Missouri, that used to be a total safe haven, you know, untouchable. But now that may no longer be the case. If, if China and Russia will really risk um, acceptance, they could, you know, cripple those bases so that the U.S. wouldn't be able to use those bombers and then do what they need to do within their region. So it's not like I think that kind of scenario is likely. That would be a major offensive action. But the point of the article is to show that these sanctuaries the U.S. has counted on don't exist anymore. And that's going to require a fundamentally different American way of war based more on big swarms of drones and lots of missiles distributed all around its enemy's territory, not on putting all of our eggs in a few baskets, like with big aircraft carriers and big bases and assuming that those are safe. So now that we are in an adversarial almost position with China, despite being its largest trading partner, where do you see the opportunity for the U.S. and its allies to invest their resources and their money. I mean, back in the 50s, South Korea used to be a nation of rice farmers before the United States chose to invest in it. And today it is democratic, pretty wealthy, and one of the key manufacturing hubs on the planet other than Taiwan. You know, the, the hope is that the United States and its allies get together and, you know, cooperate in the area of high technology. You know, the United States 
isn't necessarily the top producer of, of, you know, a lot of its allies are the ones who are really like the top semiconductor producers, for example, computer numerical control machines, all of these things that are critical to make powerful computers, which are then the linchpin technology for, you know, everything we think of as like artificial intelligence. Those are going to become more critical in the future. All of the, the, the core of a lot of these technologies is just like brute force computing power. And you need to be able to be at the cutting edge of that. So if that's something the United States and its allies could jointly invest in, not only does that bring them together, but it would basically make them unstoppable because a single country like China could never hope to compete against a huge network of rich countries that already have tremendous technological expertise and experience all working together and in synergistic fashion to produce the, the latest cutting edge designs. So one would hope that that's going to increasingly be the case, but I, I'm not necessarily that confident given a lot of the longer term trends where I think these countries are going to come under enormous economic strain, largely for demographic reasons, but also because of the, the fiscal devastation after the COVID crisis. And so that in itself may impede cooperation because every country may say, well, we got to look out for ourselves. We got to hoard what we have and not share with others. And so you won't get the kind of tight you know, Western technology networks that you saw in the latter part of the Cold War that were really critical in helping the United States and its allies leapfrog and stay way ahead of Soviet technology. So that would be the hope, but I'm, I'm somewhat pessimistic about that kind of rosy future. So when we speak about deglobalization, bringing manufacturing jobs back home. Do you think that is a real possibility? Or do you think that we just, we don't deglobalize, but we kind of re-globalize in the Western hemisphere where all of the manufacturing gets moved to Mexico and the Latin American countries? Yeah, I think it's more a regionalization of supply chains. So part of that is for geopolitical reasons. So obviously with the US-China Cold War, there's now a big push to try to um, consolidate U.S. supply chains among trusted allies, and especially if you can within the Western Hemisphere, just because it's so much more secure. And as you mentioned, I think technologies are going to make that kind of more regional strategy much more possible in the future and actually make the Western Hemisphere a major economic hub going forward. Because, you know, with things like 3D, with additive manufacturing, you know, you don't necessarily need lots of low cost manufacturers to snap together products. You can just print them on site. And companies are already talking about how what they care about more than low cost labor now is, is proximity to consumers. Well, the U.S. market is bigger than that of the next five nations combined. So proximity to the U.S. market is absolutely crucial. And you want high skill but cost effective labor. And that is also plentiful in the United States. So I can see the United States basically turning the Western Hemisphere and especially North America into a really core hub and concentrating more and more of its economic commerce there. And it already makes up a third of US trade and a third of global GDP, just North America alone. And I think if given for geopolitical reasons and the enablers that technology is bringing, that kind of strategy is going to become much more common. I think that the globalized, these crazy production chains where you have dozens of countries making a single product and all of them just add a little bit of value along the way. That's all falling by the wayside. And COVID has accelerated that because countries are, are even less inclined to be part of these convoluted networks. That is a vastly positive picture that you have painted for me and my listeners of the future of North America. Because most of the time, 
in the recent days, we have been hearing about how the internal strife within America is going to tear it down to pieces and all of those things. How do you see what's been happening in the aftermath of the coronavirus and all of the protests and riots that have been that seem to not end, uh, especially in places like Portland? I mean, that, so the United States tearing itself apart is actually another possibility. So I'm assuming that the United States will hold together as a nation, but that can't be taken for granted. Um, I think we've seen just a massive rise in political polarization, especially since the end of the Cold War. And now what worries me the most is that that polarization, the political polarization is mapped onto cultural and even ethnic identities you know, mm-hmm. where the, the parties are divided, you know, the Republican Party is basically consolidated around uh, a white and older base. And because of changing demographics, I think they are very insecure about the fact that whites are a shrinking majority in this country, and eventually will, will be a majority minority. So that I think is animating a lot of the discord we have in our politics. And if you look at the history of presidential democracies. It's not a good one. The United States is the only one that hasn't fallen into chaos in, in recent, in, in the past few decades. So, you know, I think it's entirely possible that Americans will, will be at each other's throats. And unfortunately, we've seen this throughout history where you'll have a country that's dominant internationally and precisely because it doesn't face a sort of overarching threat that forces everyone in the country to band together against the external enemy people within the country kind of turn on each other. And so a lot of domestic divisions t- become extremely salient um, and are at the forefront. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm terrified about what's going to happen with this upcoming election because you, you know, regardless of who wins, you could see it basically becoming entrenched and, and devolving into conflict and, and having the fundamental institutions of the United States called into question. So, you know, I, I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture. You know, the geopolitical projections I'm making are assuming the United States still exists as a nation state. I, I think that'll be the case, but I can't say 100% that that is going to be the case for the long term, just given the amount of discord we see right now. What are the three major sources of information that you read and refer to in order to form your own worldview? In terms of just staying updated, you know, so not counting sort of big picture books and history books and things like that, you know, the... The major papers, not just in the United States, but you know, in, in Asia, I, I read every single day just to, to stay updated. I'm very lucky that I work for an institution, a think tank in DC, the American Enterprise Institute, that actually puts together all of the best articles from around the world, from all the major papers, and puts them together in a briefing organized by region and topic. So I scan through that every day just to kind of stay abreast of, of what's going on. I find also, you know, second, you know, magazines like The Economist and Foreign Affairs are, you know, excellent ways to kind of get a slightly broader view of longer term trends. And then finally, you know, what's not often read, but what I read extensively are academic journals, because that's where a lot of the original research is done. That's where you can kind of get away from the day to day news stories that consume so much attention, but then are sort of fleeting. And so, you know, I dig into academic journals, especially international security which I think has produced some of the finest research on, on the topic for, for a couple of decades now. So those are the three areas I, I look at just to kind of stay informed. I think the best insights, though, come, frankly, from just sucking it up and reading every history book you can find related to the topic. If you're studying another country, you know, I, I lived in China for, for a period of time, and that was critical, I think, for me to have that on the ground experience and to meet and talk with people 
on the ground. I mean, there's no substitute for that kind of stuff in terms of broader understanding. I think those are really wise words, especially for youngsters who are graduating and coming into the world right now. Which are the few books that you find yourself recommending to your friends, especially those that are not from your own field of work? Uh, that's, yeah, there's so many options. Um, I think, you know, one one book that I find really interesting because of its, it took such a massive scope and I think did really well was this book by a Stanford, I think he's an archaeologist, you know, and a classicist, but he writes also on current affairs. His name is Ian Morris. And he wrote a book called Why the West Rules for Now. And where he, you know, I, I think that his conclusions are are not as important as just the way that he he basically tried to summarize tens of thousands of years of history and organize it in in a way that allows you to kind of understand what makes for successful civilizations or or today successful nation states, why some have failed and why some have succeeded or trounced others. And he has this amazing combination of both like hardcore data that he's assembled partially through like archaeological digs, but also of course, you know, statistical data that's been collected by other people and from history books, but also a lot of interesting historical anecdotes that just make it such a fun read. So I, I just thoroughly enjoyed that book and I recommend it to anyone that just wants to get a big picture view of kind of the human condition, frankly, and of, of you know, the rise and fall of civilizations. Another book I, I often recommend is John Mearsheimer's The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. I like it because it kind of, even though I don't necessarily agree with his super offensive realist views about how every, he, he assumes every country is trying to amass as much power as possible, that strikes me as a bit extreme. But his, what I like is that his theory and then his discussion of the rise and fall of the great powers over the last couple of centuries kind of strips away a lot of the frankly, froofy baggage and gets to the core interests of the countries and shows the Game of Thrones that basically gets played out among the great powers and how those things get resolved. And so I find it, it lives up to its billing. It's a highly realistic view of great power politics. And it's also, I just like the way he writes too, in this kind of no-nonsense fashion. I mean, finally, I would just recommend anything by George Orwell, especially in these kind of dystopian times. I, I, I go back to, you know, my high school reading English list a lot to look at Orwell. And I find it increasingly prescient about the kind of world that we live in now for various reasons. So I, I just think he was a brilliant political observer and could tell it through just compelling narratives. So I would recommend anything by him as well. There is a specific reason why I didn't dive too deep into the book, because I want my listeners to read it, because it is an amazing take and especially a, a fantastic argument against the declinists who are more in the media than there are who, who try and bring about a, a more accurate picture about the pros and cons. So if my, if my listeners want to connect with you, interact with you, what would be the best place for them to do that? Well, I, you know, I just have a website where I post most of my research and, and writing. So if they just want to dig around that, that's, you know, it's just michaelbeckley.org. If you just Google Michael Beckley, it should be one of the first things that comes up. I'm also, you know, my email address is on there. So if, if uh, listeners want to reach out to me about something in particular, they're more than welcome to reach. And I will, I will try to get back to them as soon as possible, assuming my kids don't intervene, which they're trying to do right now. And, you know, I also, you know, I, so I work for Tufts University and for the American Enterprise Institute. And so, you know, for, for media inquiries, you know, you can contact those institutions and, and we can get in touch that way. But um, I'm easy to reach. So I think the best way is just, 
going to my website, which has my contact information and has most of my research posted, ungated. So, you know, it's, it's free to read. Thank you so much for your time today. I'll leave the li- links to your article and the book and the, the other books that you recommended just now. Okay, thank you so much for having me.